You know, God's, God is more than this spiritual, celestial spectator. I think too often in our view of the horizontal dailiness of life, we get this idea that God is somehow on the sidelines just watching you and me sort of uh, amble through our life trying to figure things out. We fail, we sin, we repent, we come back to the Lord, we have seasons of growth, seasons of sin, seasons of apathy and stagnation, and somehow we envision God as sort of on the sidelines like the celestial being just watching the affairs of humanity, wondering what we're going to do. Um, The text we come to today in Genesis chapter 20 is a compact chapter compared to the last two that we've looked at. This one is a pretty clear and crisp unit of thought. Uh, The story has to do with God's providential protection over his people, but very specifically it's over the purity of Sarah. And God has a very high view of marriage, as we'll see the ancient Near Eastern culture even had a high view of marriage. And uh, Abraham is going to jeopardize one more time his marriage, his uh, relationship with Sarah, motivated out of fear. Because we are sinful, because we are weak in faith, we doubt God's promises. Uh, It is somewhat of a sad commentary that we have to come back again and again and again asking God for forgiveness Uh, repeating the same sins over and over again. On the one hand, we have a picture of a patriarch with astonishing faith, leaving his home, willing to go fight to rescue his nephew on more than one occasion, interceding for God not to destroy the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again and again, we see this emboldened man. But the darker stories seem to be the ones that get more coverage. And I think God is telling us, I believe God is telling us, that we're going to struggle with faith, We're going to struggle with fear. We're going to sin. His promises will nevertheless not be thwarted. He will nevertheless keep his word even when we are faithless. He will always be faithful. At the highest level of this passage, I would simply say it's living in fear or living in faith. And do we choose to live in the fear of what could happen? Or do we live by faith knowing what may happen? Do we live from fear to fear, from situations, what what will happen if I don't intercede? What happens if the worst case scenario develops? How will I respond? Do we live in fear or do we live in faith? Abraham and Sarah are going to place God's covenant in harm's way. And the striking part about this chapter is this is as close as we get. In fact, chapter 21, Isaac's born. So the record, this is as close as we get to the promise being fulfilled and Abraham's going to drop the ball. It's amazing all that they've been through and on the cusp of God, in fact we'll see in the chapter, they're in the land for the very first time technically. They're in Gerar. They have been spared destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They've seen what God has done to judge the wicked and the unrighteous. And now on the cusp of that, Abraham and Sarah, this time more complicit it seems in the past, uh, are that close to getting the promise, that close to Isaac being born, Put the promise in peril one more time. It's been 20 years since Abraham lied when he went down to Egypt and talked to Pharaoh. Um, It may seem hard for you and me to fathom. I mean, how would he try this half-baked lie again? How would he do this one more time? And yet, as we learned last week from Rob, if we were to think carefully about our own Christian life, we sin again and again and again. And most of us would acknowledge we sin the same sins again and again and again. 
It's hard to understand Abraham had a legitimate fear for his life. Most of us in this room don't wake up fearing for our life day in and day out. But Abraham in that world, in that culture, was afraid for his life. So he's going to lie, half-truth, in order to preserve his life. And God, of course, will have to rescue the patriarch. To give you a little bit of a context, Genesis 18 and 19, the visitation of the three, Christ and the two angels to Abraham, and the visitation of the two angels to Lot, that whole section of 1819 is about one day. One day in time. A lot of coverage about the detail of the comparison and contrast of the life of faith, Abram, and the life of Lot, and how they compare and contrast. What we see in chapter 20 is a much more compressed view, and it may have been a fairly lengthy amount of time, because obviously uh, Sarah is not yet pregnant, and the next time we read in chapter one, she will be, uh, chapter 21, she'll be giving birth to their son Isaac. Derek Kidner writes, on the brink of Isaac's birth story, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. And I remind you, uh, we don't live in the fear Abraham lived in, so let's be kind to the patriarch and understand, but he's still living in fear, not in faith. That's the high principle. Well, let's look at chapter 20, the first two verses to begin with, and where we read that sin has greater consequences than I think any of us understands. Now Abraham journeyed there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. We don't know why Abraham moves from the Oaks of Mamre. It was a high point where he had been. It was a place where he could see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's total speculation, but perhaps overlooking that devastation was just too much, too horrific for him. So he decides to move. He goes quite a bit west of, uh, east of Sodom and Gomorrah toward the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the narrator begins with this very quiet but ominous. Look at your verse 1 again. He journeyed there toward the land of the Negev. It's almost the exact same phrase in chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 9, when he moves on and he goes down to Pharaoh. He goes down south. It's a way of getting out of trouble. It's a way of, of moving. We've talked about sojourning and journeying and dwelling. Those words mean a little different than we might read in our English ear. But he's going to go down and lie to Pharaoh in Genesis 12, verse 9. In Genesis 20, he's going to go down and lie to Abimelech. Gerar is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. If you were to look at a map of the Dead Sea, you would see Sodom and Gomorrah on the far west side, closer to Jordan. So he's trekked all the way across, almost to the coast uh, line of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, quite a distance. He'll be, he'll be near Beersheba, for those of you that know a little bit about uh, Israel and the land. The word Abimelech, remind, we need to remind ourselves, it's Avimelech in Hebrew, Avimelech. Avi means my father. Melech, M-L-K, are the three radical Hebrew letters for king, Melchizedek, Melech. So we have Avi Melech, my father is the king. So it's somewhat of an ostentatious, pretentious title. We'll see in chapter 26 another Abimelech, and that is more likely than not the grandson of this Abimelech that we're encountering here in Gerar. God intervenes to save his people and to protect the promise. Look at verses 3 through 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream in the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. 
Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not say to me himself, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God's warning to Abimelech in verse 3 is a death sentence. It's an ominous death sentence he gets. Um, He's taken a married woman in both Egyptian and Ugarit cultures, which would be the ancient Near East at that time. This was not uncommon. You didn't just take another man's wife and and cohabit with that person. Even as a king, you didn't take a married person and bring him into your harem. And this is where scholars and uh, students debate at great length what these harems were like. It's a whole other subject. But more often than not, when a person, a woman was conscripted to these harems, it'd be a long time before she would ever see the king or the pharaoh in a conjugal relationship of any kind. So she's been brought in. It's also quite remarkable to think that this 90 plus year old woman is still attractive enough to be wanted to come into uh, a harem. But nevertheless, uh, that's part of the storyline of the beauty of Sarah. Um, she belonged to another to take her, would destroy that marriage, would destroy that family, and it was a warning that God gives to Abimelech. I've said it many times, even though we put ourselves in harm's way, even though we can sin volitionally and make bad choices, nothing can thwart God's plan for your life. That's hard for us to choke down in our human, our horizontal view of things because God's on the sideline watching us sin, watching us make poor choices. But in the grand scheme of theology, no one, no thing can thwart God's plan for Sarah and for Abraham. And I would apply that to the believer as well. Certainly we can choose to sin and God may or may not deliver us from the consequences of those sins. Well, Abimelech's protest in verses 4 and 5 is evocative of Abraham's plea for Sodom. Abraham, you remember in chapter 18, is pleading, if there's any righteous, will you withhold your destruction? And here it's almost the same. It's turned upside down. The word righteous there is the same word blameless you have in chapter 20 here in Genesis. Uh, Abimelech's saying, look, I'm a righteous person. I have integrity. You're not the kind of God that would destroy people who have integrity and who are blameless, are you? You wouldn't do that to people. It's the same implication. And isn't that, in a sense, not only a pagan, but a worldly view of the way we think of a God? A God should be fair, a God should be kind, a God should be merciful, a God should be just. Even pagans get that much of the storyline. Now, pagans go too far, unbelievers go too far. We say, well, God should do this and shouldn't do that. But there's a sense, and I would call that what Augustine said, the God consciousness that each person has, the God consciousness inside us that we know right from wrong. And we know God wouldn't destroy the righteous and those of integrity. The protest and the holding fast are interesting in the text. Uh, He protests that Abraham and Sarah lied to him. He protests that these messengers of yours deceived me. He holds fast his integrity. He says, how can you slay me? 
In a sense, Abimelech is more righteous than Abraham. Because Abimelech comes clean. Abimelech believed what Abraham and Sarah had told them about their relationship. Abimelech was doing, we might say, the right thing in the right way, even though he's a pagan bringing her into his harem. But was Abraham's God just? That's the question Abimelech is asking. Well, God gives him instruction, and it's interesting that God knows he's blameless. He tells him, I know that, and he also goes further to say, if you want to preserve your integrity, this is what you have to do. Notice verse 6, I also kept you from sinning against me. Striking, he doesn't say from sinning against Sarah or sinning against Abraham or from breaking a marriage. He goes, I stopped you from sinning against me. Now, I've often encouraged and warned, don't read into the text more than the text says. We don't know what the illness is, and we don't know the period of time precisely. We're going to see at the end of the chapter that the women were infertile. So it's got to be for some period of time this is going on. Well, there is some connection with perhaps the illness that befell Abimelech was also an illness that prevented him from having a relationship with people. It's just speculation, but it seems to make some kind of sense in the storyline. He said, I kept you from sinning against me, which raises a big question. We're not just sinning man to man or man to woman or woman to woman or woman to man. We're sinning against God. This is one of the harsh realities of sin. There's no victimless sin. Sin always is against God. Even private, covetous, internal sins, they're still against God. He says, I kept you. It reminds the reader that this isn't some human power versus the patriarch. This isn't some jousting. This is a a would-be human king against the sovereign God. And the sovereign God says, I kept you from sinning against me in this relationship. Abimelech sees the danger, he acknowledges it, and in order for him to live, he has to restore Sarah and ask for Abraham to pray for him. It's the first time in your Bible you have the word prophet in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. It's the first time it occurs in our book. Um, A prophet does a number of things. When you think of Abraham being called a prophet, A, he receives revelation from God. B, he mediates or communicates those messages to people. He tells Sarah what God told him. He tells his tribe what God told him. Here we're going to see him intercede for him. And, and thirdly, excuse me, thirdly, he intercedes for others. So a prophet receives revelation from God. He communicates or mediates that to others, and he's going to intercede on behalf of people. So therefore, Abraham is given the title from God as his prophet. The warning is repeated in verse 7. It's a serious matter. Know that you shall surely die. And the language is very reminiscent of the garden warning. And the day you eat, you will surely die. All these sins continue to evolve. There are no new sins. They just evolve and get more depraved, we might say. Nothing is new under the sun. Well, in verses 8 to 16, we see how this integrity has to be demonstrated. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. 
And the Bimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. Uh, The clear distress of Abimelech is seen in the movement. You've got to almost see some humor in it. Verse 8, he arose early in the morning. I doubt he slept much that evening after he awoke from that dream where God told him, you're a dead man. And if you don't restitute this and restore Sarah to her husband, and all yours will be killed. Um, Waltke writes, a good king produces a good nation. It's interesting, we read over this stuff so quickly, but in verse 8, when his men heard it, his servants heard it, all the men were greatly frightened. It tells you a lot about Abimelech. It tells you a lot about the kind of leader he was in Gerar, that he was a man of integrity, a man of his word, and when he had this dream, he reveals it to his people, they're like, we better do something about this, we agree with you. And again, Waltke A good king produces a good nation. Abimelech confronts Abraham for his deception. Abimelech indicts Abraham for his complicity, along with Sarah's complicity in deceiving him. And Abraham's defense to Abimelech, even though it seems pale, there's rich irony in the story. You see, Abraham was afraid that there was no fear of God. The reason he asked Sarah to lie, to speak this half-truth, half-lie, the reason he asked, he says, there's no fear of God in this place. They'll kill me and take you. Abraham is more afraid of men than he is of God. Abimelech, on the other hand, is more afraid of God than he is of Abraham. So we've got this unrighteous, well, he's good. He's got integrity. He's a truthful, moral pagan. But he is more a man of integrity than our patriarch is in the story. Abraham should have been fearing God and not man. Abraham's half-truth, I remind you, a half-truth is always a whole lie. Well, the restitution requires him to do some things. It requires some obedience. Verse 14, Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, Settle wherever you please. Remember, to dwell in the land uh, was, was longer than a camp out. To dwell or to sojourn and to dwell, typically most migratory, you moved as a Bedouin encampment where there was water, where there was pasture, where there was shelter of, of trees, produce, and so forth. And you stayed there and lived off the land until it could no longer stay. You then you would move again. And that was how the, the Bedouin mindset that Abraham lived, unlike Lot, who's camping near the city of Sodom, eventually living in the city, Abraham was a migratory, we might call him a Bedouin farmer, a Bedouin rancher who moved around. And so this sojourning was more, it was not just you keep on moving every day, you would find a good place to camp and stay there for a month or years. Um, To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you. 
and before all men you are cleared. Uh, Abimelech's action confirmed his integrity. You know, I can't say it 100% definitively, but it seems that a man or a woman of integrity works tenaciously to keep their integrity. Many of you are men and women of integrity. Your word is true. When you're confronted, you admit you're wrong. When you're in a conflag with your husband or wife, you're quick to say, okay, I'm wrong. You're quick to say, let's put the problem over here. Let's not fight, eat, kill each other. Let's put the problem over here. You're willing to own your mistakes. You're not perfect, but a man or woman of integrity, it seems when you use that word integer, integrity, indivisible, it seems when you use that word that you'll work hard to keep it. It's a good litmus to me, a good reminder to me. Abimelech wants to keep his integrity. Well, this extravagant reparations that he gives are over the top. They're above and beyond description. He gives them flocks and herds and servants. Sound familiar? In chapter 12, when he lied to Pharaoh in Egypt, Egypt gave him flocks and herds and servants. And one of those servants more than likely was named Hagar, who bears the son Ishmael. Now he's going to get even more flocks and herds and servants. Uh, Walkie suggests here, to honor God and their special relationship to him, not to compensate for guilt. He's not giving this thousand shekels and all these uh, animals and people to somehow say, I'm covering my guilt, I'm making reparations, but it's a restitution of a woman back to her proper husband. And I love Walkie's observation. It was to honor God and the relationship they had with him, not somehow to compensate for his guilt. Now, some of your English Bibles have translated this, your vindication, in a variety of ways. I won't take time to read them all. The literal rendering is a covering of your eyes. And frankly, no one has a clue what this means. Um, The best guesses, and they are that guesses, by scholars are that by giving her this thousand pieces of silver, which by the way, in that culture, you didn't give it to Sarah, you gave it to the husband, to the brother, to the clansman, the tribeman. So when he gives it to the head of the clan, the head of the tribe, it's to give it to the whole family. But when he does this, what the best speculation, the best guess, that's all it is, is that he's saying, look, she is in the same or better condition than when I took her in there. Nothing happened to her. Let me show you how extravagant I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating this. I'm going to give you all this money. Now, to put it in perspective, and these numbers are, um, if you study numbers and, and currency in the Old Testament, New Testament, you can get really lost and waste a lot of time. Um, but some conservative estimates, Bedouin, uh, Babylonians would earn a half a shekel a month is an average wage earner. A half a shekel a month. You do the math, it's 167 years of wages that he gave them with a thousand pieces of silver. No matter how you parse it or try to make the comp comparison, it's a lot of money. Flocks, herds, servants, and wealth. Is, and he says, wherever you want to stay, wherever you want in Gerar, you go settle. We won't bother you. You'll be fine. He went in afraid they would take his wife and kill him Now he's been fattened and resourced and supplied, and you can stay wherever you want, we might say, free of charge. The Restoration, verses 17 and 18, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And this is the first clue we get in the narrative that something happened to him as well. He healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed fast the wombs 
of the household of Abimelech because Sarah, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Again, we don't know the nature of it. We know they, they, were, they were infertile or unable to conceive during that time. Abimelech learns uh, through Abraham that Abraham's God is yet sovereign. It's an interesting lesson to think that here's a, um, Abimelech, a king that has only rumors of this Hebrew God, this, this God of Abraham, and he's more righteous and more honorable than the messenger of God. This restoration process when he prays for Abraham, uh, for Abimelech, though, is interesting because only through the prophet Abraham will he be healed, will he be spared. So God, in a very kind way, is reaffirming and reasserting and restoring Abraham in view of the pagan world, not just sort of this is the way you get forgiven, Abimelech. No, Abraham is the one who's going to pray for you and grant these things to you and because I'm going to do it through him. Uh, The text does again elaborate on the time or the nature of the infertility, but the poignant reminder from the literature standpoint, and don't miss it, you've already probably connected the dots, Sarah has been infertile all of her married life. And God told her in the prior chapter, next year she'd have a baby. She goes in to Gerar and all the women are now infertile. And until God, through Abraham, intercession, all those women are infertile. And the infertile one is then going to leave and she will conceive. So the the literary irony is rich through this whole story. God intervened again. He protects the patriarch. He protects the promised land, which, by the way, Gerar would be in the land definition. And he protects the promised son who's going to be forthcoming the value, face value of the story, Alan Ross writes, this little story warns God's desire is for the purity of marriage, of his covenant people. And God withholds or grants children to those who fear him and live in integrity. High principle, not universal principle, but a high principle. And it seems to underscore the passage. A couple of observations um, as before we break bread tonight together. The first and foremost to me is there's no such thing as a harmless or victimless sin. There's no such thing as a harmless or victimless sin. Uh, So-called consenting adults, it hurts other people. Pornography hurts other people. You may not understand that, but you must take it by faith or study it a little bit to understand that a pornographer is encouraging the pornography industry. A pornographer, a man or woman, women are also becoming uh, quite steeped in pornography, are betraying their covenant relationship or singles. They're damaging their relationship with the future by the wrong images. Apathy, not caring, affects other people. Covetousness, greed, self-promotion. Back to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. Money, sex, and power. We, we may look at those sins as sort of a, well, this is my little pet, and it doesn't hurt anybody because I'm covetous or because I want to be, I love wealth more than the use of wealth and being generous, or that I love the power or whatever the case may be. Um, there's no victimless sin. And if you can see that it affects no person in any way, shape, or form, don't miss what God said to Abimelech. I stopped you from sinning against me. 
It's ironic that most people who get involved in an affair, most people who get involved in some sin, um, they're more afraid of being found out by their spouse, found out by their worker, their, their employer, if they steal or whatever. They're more afraid of that than they are what God thinks of our sin, aren't we? It may help us appreciate our patriarch a little more. He was more afraid for his life in Gerar than he was what God was going to do. And this runs my mind to Romans 6 where Paul warns, shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? Make an ointment, may it never be. Don't you understand? We know God's going to forgive us. Do we use that as a license to sin? Because we know he'll forgive us? I would say the largest part of this room has done the math in their head more than once. I know I can be forgiven, therefore I will sin. I've done it. And Paul exhorts us, don't do that. Now, he doesn't just say stop sinning. The beautiful part of Scripture is they don't just say stop sinning because that would be impossible. It'd be nice if we could. But it's always a stop sinning and it's a turning to do something else. So it's turning those energies of sin to some other kind of energy, some other type of activity. Um, When we we think about sins that pull us down and pull us away, we know we're forgiven, but there's got to be a reframing of why, I tell you often, study your sin. When are you most vulnerable? When do you find yourself engaging in that sin? When do you go dark? And it may be after a success. It may be after a long week. It may be when you're tired. Maybe when you're hungry, you're angry. There, there's, some, there's some pattern to when we sin. And so if you are a student of your sin patterns, I think not to study your sin, but a student of your sin why am I doing this now? God, you haven't done right by me. I'm going to engage in this sin, and I know that you're going to forgive me in the back of my head. Um, Rather, our life is to be a thank you. Our life is to be thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you've forgiven me yet again. Thank you that you still love me, even though I sinned another time. Thank you that your forgiveness cost dearly, but I embrace it freely. Thank you, thank you. A gratitude, a spiritual heart of gratitude goes a long way. There are a lot of unseen consequences in our sin life, and we have to be careful of them. The story of the patriarch is removed from us. It's big, it's landscaped, but our sin is just as important. Um, I used to be quite a fan of uh, Lake Wobegon. Some of you know the uh, Garrison Keeler's program. Um, Prairie Home Companion, and he had a little story he would tell each week called Lake Wobegon, news from Lake Wobegon, where all the, what is it, all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Remember Lake Wobegon? Well, this was one letter he read. It was called The Letter from Jim, and I want you to think about it in the framework of unseen consequences of our sins. Dear, I heard your tribute to people uh, on la- when you turned 40 last Saturday, it was, it was, uh, he wrote it to Garrison. Uh, Dear Garrison, I, I heard your tribute to people when you turned 40 last Saturday. This was quite a while back. So I was so moved, I turned the radio off and went to bed. Since November, when it happened to me, turning 40 has been a sore subject. Sort of like tripping over a rake and turning your knee. It hurt for a while, especially when you're my age. Somewhere inside me is the youth I really am. But he comes out very seldom usually only when I play basketball, and usually that's right when I injure myself. I play in the senior church league, half court, 
Also on the drive with Eric, my son who is 17, the kids are thriving. Bill is 14, Eleanor 12, Sam 8, Carol since her best, she is 38, I am 40 as you recall. What made my birthday even more poignant was the fact that I lost my job. Last April, the dean came into the classics department and told us that classical languages were dead. Two of us had to go. I went home for supper unemployed. It was hard news to break. We've lived in this town for many years. This is the home of my family. This is where our friends are. When I said I lost my job, Eleanor said, well, you can find another one. And she meant here. The children didn't understand that in this town, if you don't work for the college, there's not much left for a Ph.D. in classics to do. It's a long drop from teaching to pumping gas at the sunny standard. Not a career change I wanted to make. But the children didn't understand careers, only that families have homes and dads have jobs. A few weeks later, the dean called and offered me a place in the admissions and counseling and interviewing prospective students, running the loan program, counseling freshmen and sophomores. Twice the work for one-fourth the pay. I jumped at it. I started my new job in July. It was hellish. I used to be a scholar, a beloved figure on campus, dear old Dr. Nordberg in his corduroy jacket stained with pipe ash, ambling across the green, thinking thoughts in ancient tongues. Now, I was the typist who pushed paper across the desk as fast as I could. I was miserable. When I complained to Carol about my sad life, she said, well, now you know what it's like. My fellow admissions and counseling person is a beautiful young woman named Barbara. And she and I began to counsel one another. She was lonely in our little town, so I advised her to make friends. She made friends with me. She advised me that I was funny and smart and stylish and handsome. To my family, I was daddy, the old drudge. But to this quiet woman, I was valuable for being myself. And so, one week after Christmas, Barbara offered to drive her car to a counseling conference in Chicago. I don't know what she was thinking, but I had adultery in my heart. It was Thursday night. I shot baskets with Eric. We had supper. I packed a bag. I kissed Carol goodbye, went out the door. I thought, so this is what adultery is like. Simple. I sat down in the front yard under our our spruce tree and waited for her to pick me up. What I saw was a street full of houses in which men and women lived lived in there with children in their ways that was always seemed decent to me and loving and honorable. None of the people on my street realized what an odd, wonderful, eccentric genius that I am. But then, I don't know what odd, wonderful geniuses they may be. I do know that my children are happy here and safe. The street is good for my flesh and blood. As I sat on the lawn looking down the street, I could see that we all somehow depend on each other. I saw that although I thought my sins could be secret, They would be no more secret than an earthquake. All these houses, all these families, my infidelity would somehow shake them. It would pollute the drinking water. It would make noxious gas come out of the ventilators in the elementary school. When we scream in senseless anger blocks away, a little girl who we do not know spills a bowl of gravy on a white tablecloth. If I go to Chicago with this woman who is not my wife, somehow the school patrol will forget to guard the intersection. Someone's child will be injured. A sixth grade teacher will think, what the hell, and eliminate South Africa from geography. Our minister will decide, what the hell, I'm not going to give that sermon on the poor. Somehow, my adultery will cause the man in the grocery store to say, what the hell, what the health department. The sausage was good yesterday. 
I'll leave the story there. Anything more would be self-serving. Except to say, we all depend on each other more than we know. And that, I'm all right. Our sins have consequences. We may not see them. They're easy to slide into. But he cares. The question is, are we more afraid of others, more afraid of life than we are of him? We live in faith, not in fear. We don't live in fear of the consequences of if we sin or what we don't do right. We live in faith and we leave the fear to him.